0: This is a crowd podcast.
1: Rosenberg. H-Bomb. Sugar Ray. Pam and Jump. Brando. The King and Night. And the Catcher in the Rye. Eisenhower. Vaccine. Oh. So many vaccines going around.
2: Hello again and welcome to episode 23 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that finds out everything that mattered in the post-war world and everything that explains the way the world is now, all dictated by Billy Joel's imagination and ability to make major global events rhyme. I'm Tom Fordyce. This is Katie Puckrick. Katie, we go where no other podcast goes because no other podcast has Billy.
1: No other podcast has Billy or Tom Fordyce or Katie Puckrick. That's true. So, um... Polio. Mm. Uh, fun to say. Almost sounds like a delicious Italian snack.
2: Have a slice of my homemade polio.
1: If you had a slice of homemade polio, you would end up in an iron lung, perhaps, because it's no laughing matter. Um, polio awareness. Uh, thank goodness, in my lifetime, it wasn't a childhood problem. How about you?
2: My only experience or tangential experience of polio was through the Radiohead song, My Iron Lung. I think once you start finding pictures of iron lungs and see children in iron lungs, you appreciate the horror. What an awful contraption. Well, a life-saving contraption, but something that no child... If childhood is about running about, exploring, about being free, the iron lung is the opposite of all those things.
1: Oh, my God. You know, just being trapped, uh, so claustrophobic, so suffocating for something that is supposed to be keeping you alive. My polio... Uh, awareness was the fact that um, it was also musical, the fact that my North Star, my Lodestar of all things musical, Joni Mitchell, had it as a child in Canada in the 50s, which resulted in a weakened left hand, which in turn led to one of the things that makes her so notable, so great, her weird guitar tunings, in her now iconoclastic technique, so in a way, the fact that she was confined to bed, uh, you know, made to kind of live inside her mind, and then overcome this weakness that uh, you know polio had affected her her limbs, uh, turned her into the great artist she is today. Wow. Yeah. Well, um, so much for uh, kicking around our random facts that we've only learned from spinning platters. It is time to bring in an expert. Dr. Gareth Millward is a historian at the University of Birmingham. He's written a book on polio. He's an expert in the history of vaccination policy in the UK post-World War II. And he's the person that can enlighten us on the disease and, in fact, the, the race to find a vaccine. Hi, Gareth. How are you doing? Uh, feeling pretty good, polio-free. Um, now, the first order of business is to establish what is this disease? What is polio?
3: Well, polio is a disease that affects the spinal column. Um, I don't, my uh, my Greek and Latin isn't particularly brilliant, but I believe that it translates to roughly as swelling of the grey matter, which is, you know, quite poetic for something that isn't necessarily uh, very poetic in itself. Um, for most people who contract the virus, you get virtually no symptoms at all. People sort of report having a bit of a cold, and that's pretty much it. But when it affects people quite badly, it can lead to paralysis in the limbs, Um, and paralysis below the neck, which, of course, as you were talking about in your intro with the iron lung, can affect the breathing uh, and therefore um, can cause suffocation and ultimately death. So it's not uh, not a pleasant infection.
1: No. How do you pick it up? Because I want to avoid catching this.
3: Well, as with a lot of things to do with people living in urban environments, the answer is fecal matter. For the most part, it's picked up through um, people not washing their hands well enough. Uh, but as I'm sure we'll get onto uh, in, in a bit, uh, there's also a problem that on the population level, actually, good sanitation might well be the thing that makes it an epidemic disease. In a sort of a weird paradox.
2: I think that's the first time we've had the phrase "fecal matter" on this podcast, Katie. Would you mind just passing me the hand sanitizer on the table, <laughs> no um, so I can have a quick squirt <laughs> while we do this topic. Um, The strange thing for us, Gareth, is it's really hard to imagine the fear that polio must have caused in society. So was it the prevalence of it or was it the impact of polio that had this effect on people?
3: That's a really good question because you often look back at these kind of grand statistics and you talk about things like morbidity and mortality, sort of the amount of people that get the disease or the amount of people that die from the disease. And when you look at polio over the course of the 20th century, the number of people that were really adversely affected is actually not that high. But there's a number of things about it that make it something to fear. Children are supposed to be able to run around and play free. And this affects children. It affects children in a very visible way. So this is the kind of thing that parents and grandparents are quite obviously very scared about when polio comes to um, their particular community. But the other thing that makes it scary is that it affects everyone. It affects rich people as much as it affects poor people. So this isn't like TB, this isn't like cholera, this isn't like smallpox. You can't blame it on, oh well that's just a poor country that doesn't know how to take care of its public health. You can't blame it on poor neighbourhoods because they spit on the floor and they don't wash their hands properly. And so it's one of those things that seems random, which is part of what makes it so scary, but it's also something that people with means can't protect themselves from in any kind of special way like in the medieval period rich people used to just leave the city in the summer to avoid all the plagues or you can't just have a nice house and keep yourself away from poor people so you don't get tb but it also affected young adults and young adults were much less likely to be paralyzed they were much more likely to die so it was also young fit men and women dropping dead so Yes, you look at the raw statistics and think, oh, well, it's not that big a deal. But actually, it is a big deal, plus it seems random. And that's what makes it so scary.
1: I'm interested in, the, in this disease. Did it just appear out of nowhere or had it been going for centuries? For instance, could we find iterations of it in caveman paintings?
3: <laughs> well, we, we as historians, we always get quite um, reticent about going back into the past and re-diagnosing people. Um, Partially because we can't do the lab tests uh, and partially because the way that the way that diseases are understood in the past is very historically specific. So the way that the way that we are talking about polio is going to be very different to the way that somebody in the 1920s or the 1820s or the 1720s talks about polio. All of that said, I'm going to break all of those rules. So we know um, that we have uh, not necessarily cave paintings, but we do have images from uh, ancient Egypt, which look So similar to polio, and based on what we know about the genome of the polio virus, it seems to have evolved along with humans in the same way that TB and smallpox have evolved alongside humans. So it probably was polio.
1: What do we see in these Egyptian paintings?
3: The sort of the typical kind of physical manifestation, so bowed legs um, and a walking stick as well. So, this idea of needing some kind of technology to help get around so we know that it's been around for a long time and the the virus itself and the disease being sort of identified in a scientific way happens in the early 19th century the early 1800s but it's not until the late 19th century that it becomes epidemic and the first one in britain isn't until after the second world war wow the thing katie that scares me about that era is the not
2: knowing. So you and me could be living in small town, America, and it's summer, so we're out and about. We'd go to the local swimming pool. We might go to a, a friend's house and play in the back garden. And we'd come back and we could have caught polio from doing those ordinary things, That the invisible nature of it.
1: Yeah, the fact that uh, you know you start to feel under the weather and then a minute later you're paralyzed from the neck down, that kind of ruins your summer vacation. Uh, i mean polio and it
3: ruined parents um summer's vacations as well i think it's worth it's worth saying at that point so some parents wouldn't let their kids play outside in the summer and you can imagine the effect that that's going to have on a on a kid's sort of um upbringing and sort of relationships with friends and all those other kind of things but like parents didn't know what the the right thing to do was uh it's it's really really yeah quite scary for for the kids as, as and certainly for the parents
1: one of the things that is very interesting about uh, polio and the way it was sweeping across the world, and particularly in America, was not only was it visible through the very heart-rending images and newsreel documentation of children in calipers and in iron lungs, but the fact that Franklin Roosevelt was the president, and he was in the White House in a wheelchair because he'd been felled by polio. I mean, that, that was really in your face. And of course, there were lots of newsreels run before movies and scary public service announcements with the specter of polio embodied by a shadow that drifts across children's faces and blights their lives. So it's almost like a, like a horror film lived in real life.
3: Yeah, it was very emotive. This is probably one of the reasons why it's in the song is because it becomes kind of emblematic of what post-war technical planning can achieve. Um, But celebrity, if that's the right word for somebody like uh, a president of the United States, that becomes a big part of this story. Uh, I know that when you get to verse four, you're going to be talking about Elvis Presley, but Elvis Presley was involved in a lot of the advertising around the March of Dimes, which was the big sort of um, fund that was set up to help... Uh, The research into polio, but he was also a big part of the I've got vaccinated as a young man, and you should get vaccinated too. And I'm Elvis Presley, so it's cool kind of advertising kind of element to uh, this whole thing.
2: That race to get a vaccine fascinates me because you've got two camps, have you, Gareth? You've got is it Jonas Salk or Salk in Pittsburgh, and then you've got Hilary Koprowski in. Philadelphia and I like to think of them as sort of benign rivals where they are both hoping obviously to find a cure for polio and they'll be delighted if one of them does or a vaccination but at the same time they're desperate to be the one who does it
3: benign I I like to think of it as benign I don't necessarily know whether that was actually what was going on so Kaprowski is one of the doctors who favours having an oral vaccine Um, As we were talking about, the way that this is spread is through poo. So his argument was that if you have a vaccine that people take orally, it will pass through their gut. They'll get a benign form of the disease through the gut having to deal with the virus. And the added bonus is that when it comes out the other end, if people haven't washed their hands properly, they'll then get vaccinated too, because instead of picking up real polio, they'll pick up... They'll pick up this version. Of so his argument was, if we have this, it, you're not only going to be vaccinating the person who consents to take the vaccine, so this d- does become a sort of a medical ethics kind of, you know, it also then passively vaccinates other people in the community. Kaprowski never really managed to get his vaccine to work properly, but the one that did was Albert Sabin. He did a lot of his work in the USSR, so this also becomes a Cold War kind of um, story as well. Communist bloc, first three. So <laughs> the other camp is Jonas Salk, as, as, as you were saying, and he goes down what we now think of as the more traditional vaccine route of you get a jab in the arm. It turns out that while there's this rivalry and they're both saying, mine's better, mine's better, they're both very good at very different tasks and you need both to completely eliminate the disease. So the oral one, because it can be passed through the community uh, and because it's passed through the gut, It gives you very quick protection but the injection gives you better protection a few weeks after you've had it so that's very useful for a community where either polio isn't around at the moment or where polio has been pretty much eliminated so we still vaccinate with the injected form children today because if polio virus were to come back into the community uh, that could cause a problem. But while it's not here, it gives the body time to protect itself.
1: mm one of the controversial aspects of Dr. Jonas Salk's development of his vaccine were the questionable methods of testing it in the field. He did vaccine trials on orphans and, as they called them back in the good old days, feeble-minded children without consent. So I guess he, uh, Gareth, would just show up at uh, an orphanage with needles in the juice and just, like, jab kids willy-nilly. How did it go down?
3: He got consent from the institutions that housed these people, and therefore he had legal consent, and that was that the idea that um, the idea that people with uh, learning difficulties could consent or not consent on their own behalf was very shaky ground. He was not the only person doing this. There's a great book by Michael Dwyer about uh, diphtheria immunisation in the first half of the twentieth century, uh, and pharmaceutical companies in Britain would go to Ireland and go to orphanages and various places in Ireland and test out these things. This was typical of uh, the way that these kind of experiments were done at the time. However, this is also the period, because of Eichmann, because of the Nuremberg Trials, in which we are starting to get pushback against that sort of behaviour. Because these are men, and often men, but women uh, as well, who genuinely believed that they could change the world. And you don't make an omelette without cracking a few eggs, and I think ultimately our medical ethics have moved to a point where we are a little bit more mindful about which eggs get cracked.
2: There also seems, Katie, to be just an enormous difficulty in manufacturing these vaccines. There was there was something I maybe it was the the Kaprowski one. There's a, there's a, a phrase that I read, Katie, which I'll never be able to forget, which says that his early vaccination was quote prepared with successive passages through the brains of Swiss albino mice. Wow. Which which I don't know how you get... Do you try it with a standard mouse and think, tell you what, I think I need a Swiss mouse. And then you try your standard Swiss mouse and think, this one's too grey.
1: I need a complete lack of pigment for this thing to really float (laughs) my boat.
3: So I don't know specifically about the mice. So I will I will defer to your research <laughs> on the mice. However, monkeys are interesting. So not just space monkey verse six, but <laughs> your knowledge, by the way, Gareth on this on this song is extraordinary, and I commend it highly. Look, I take these things seriously. I do my research. <laughs> so <laughs> monkeys were used quite a lot for the Salk vaccine of passing the uh, passing the virus through uh, the brains of rhesus monkeys, but also for testing that the. Uh, the virus had properly been inactivated, you'd inject a monkey and see if the monkey got paralyzed. At this point, you've got a race between various pharmaceutical companies in Canada, in America, in Britain, really trying to make sure that they get their plants online to manufacture this vaccine, because there's a limited period in which you can make a decent profit on this. Because once you've vaccinated every kid in, um, in the terms of the time, the Western world, then your demand for this drops down to the birth rate and it stops becoming as profitable. And vaccines are not that profitable for most pharmaceutical companies. It got to the point where India had to refuse exportation of monkeys because they were worried that they'd become extinct. Because India was the main supplier of these monkeys and had to say, no, we cannot export any more of these to you. We're going to run out. And it also caused PR issues. So you get headlines in like the Daily Express uh, and other tabloids where these monkeys, they're not being flown first class from <laughs> India or Singapore or wherever else to their nice little new uh, house in their final days in the testing centre. They're packed into these really tight cages. Um, and so you get headlines like monkey death ship of... That's a great headline. These...
1: That's a punk rock band. Well,
3: exa- well, I mean, it is the perfect rock band. Um, but you get these pictures of these monkeys trapped on into these tight cages on planes often because the demand is so high and they need to get there as quickly as possible, but also on uh, in storage in ships and things like that. Uh, and it really does become a sort of a, a, a bit of a, a sticking point. But how many millions of lives and millions of paralyzed children are we going to stop over the history of humanity by doing this now? Yes, the animal experimentation angle on this is Fascinating, Like you, I have no idea how you decide which particular <laughs> species is the best one to use for this, but I, I, guess, I guess that's the way they decided to do it.
2: Katie, I need a couple of minutes to process all that stuff. Shall we have some quick adverts? Hello there. This is my friend Joe. Hi. Now, Joe plays rugby for England. Yeah, what's your point? Come on. Well, Joe presents a podcast and it's my firm belief that you should listen to it. Very interesting. And here's why. Because it's not actually a rugby podcast because, well, let's face it, there's billions of them already.
0: No, 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 no.
4: It's about you, the listener, and the jobs you do. If you're a teacher,
2: an astronaut, a tree surgeon or a chef, then we've got loads of questions for you. The Joe Marler Show. Because... Everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. That's a great line. That is a that is a very good line from you, Tom. Thank you, Joe. You want to find it? Search for The Joe Marler Show in your podcast app. Because everyone
3: is interesting if you ask the right questions. <laughs>
1: Gareth, can you talk about the Cutter incident of 1955, uh, the Cutter laboratory where the bad batch contaminated with live polio paralyzed and, and killed children who were vaccinated with it?
3: Yeah, the Cutter incident is something that really could have set this whole thing back so many years. And I think it it really does um, help to explain quite how monumental the polio vaccine was and quite how um, this period is exactly the period where people have faith in big science and big technological answers this is the age of uh, the coming of penicillin the space race is about to start Um, over the previous sort of 20 30 years you've had the invention of the telephone powered flight um, radio so this is an era in which people genuinely believe that it's only a case of spending enough money and enough brain power and you'll find the magic bullet solution to all of life's problems and so the polio vaccine just fits all of those points so well it's just it's the thing that you inject and then polio has gone it's a quick magic bullet kind of solution but the cutter incident in a lot of ways really could have derailed that Because what happens is that in the manufacture of a batch of the Salk vaccine, the virus isn't inactivated in the way that it should have been, and the safety procedures are not gone through in the way that they should have been. And so a live batch of the vaccine ends up being injected into children, and it directly affects a number of children, and then causes a localised polio outbreak that affects another bunch of, of people. and. Immediately this happens, the uh, The Antipodean governments, uh, New Zealand and Australia, immediately suspend their plans to bring in a polio program. The British use it as a reasonably convenient excuse to say, oh, well, we won't import any North American vaccine because that's not safe and it's not as effective as our brilliant British vaccine. <laughs> but why I find it fascinating is that you would have thought that an incident like that in which People have been demonstrably harmed by the vaccine. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This isn't something that you hear about on the internet. This is provably happened. And yet, within a few months, President Eisenhower, last week, has (laughs) decided that, no, we're gonna continue with this. We're gonna continue providing it. And polio rate drops so significantly, so quickly, that most of the other countries that have issues with it change their minds. Ordinary people that don't have access to the scientific papers, that don't necessarily understand the difference between an individual manufacturer and the vaccine. The fact that they were still presenting themselves, still presenting their children through the mid to late 50s, I think says something about how much faith they had in medical and political authorities, that what they were being provided with was going to solve this problem, just the whole process around that mid50 s moment and the cutter incident to me is is fascinating
2: there's some charming footage Katie that we've probably both watched of the vaccination program being rolled out, and people with great smiles on their faces rolling up their sleeves and being jabbed at an extraordinary rate by a series of doctors and it makes the whole thing look Not only like a fun process, but you can almost sense this wonder at what science is doing. Just this sort of giddy, we're going to solve all the world's problems.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Almost like it's your civic duty to do it. You can see it in the faces of these shiny, cheeked little kids where they know that they're part of a bigger project. And yet, Gareth, there was vaccine hesitancy. I mean, not helped along by the internet of today, which of course uh, would have turned a spark into a wildfire, but people did have some resistance to it. Is that right?
3: Yes, there was. And and there will be with anything that is new. There's always a question of, is it safe? Is it appropriate? In Britain, um, there was a long history of anti-vaccination in Britain dating back to the 19th century when smallpox vaccination was made compulsory. And there was a lot of resistance from uh, particularly local communities where public health had traditionally been the preserve of the local authority and parenting had very much been the domain of the household. And so to dictate nationally what you must do to your children, that got quite a lot of resistance. So much so that in the late 19th century, this concept of conscientious objection is brought in for vaccination where if you can convince a magistrate that you genuinely don't want your kids vaccinated for personal philosophical reasons um, you don't have to do it and that's where the term conscientious objection becomes part of British law. So fast forward a few years and we're into 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 polio there are some people that oppose it on animal rights grounds what's remarkable is how little direct anti-vaccinationism that you see here but what you do see is parents not necessarily presenting their children for vaccination. So that's the one end of it. The other end of hesitancy comes from young people. And I know we're recording this sort of as the vaccine rollout is really picking up speed. I'm registered for Monday, so that's good. <laughs> but you've got young people who think, "Ah, eh, I'm young, it's fine. I'm not going to I'm not going to bother." So you get local authorities really trying hard to get young people to show up. So one of the things they try in Bristol is a vaccination while you dance. Oh, I know we're talking. Uh, yeah, exactly. So they go down to the local uh, the local dance hall uh, and they're sat in the corner and they've got the registration sheets and everything and maybe a little bit of uh, vaccination and the med- local medical officer of health. And the thing that really changes people's mindsets in Britain is at the end of the 1950s, there's a footballer for Birmingham City called Jeff Hall who had played for England at fullback and after a game, he feels a bit off and within a week, he's died of polio. And that really convinces young people, especially young men, that this is something that can affect them and they really should turn up to be vaccinated. Um, You get Pathé newsreels of uh, football teams walking down to their medical office of health. And, you know, you were talking about the lines of people with their smiling faces. So lines of Charlton athletic players getting vaccinated against the disease.
1: I like, Gareth, how you say uh, British people were lured by the promise of a wiggle on the dance floor, uh, <laughs> cutting a rug, that's all it took. But in America, with the uh, the COVID vaccine in the state of Ohio, they're doing a lottery. So for Americans, it's cash money. That's the thing that's br- bringing people in, luring them in to the idea of getting a vaccine.
2: <laughs> Katie, you talked about Joni Mitchell and the effect that polio had on her. What I found really interesting is the number of other creative types, shall we say, who maybe had that part of their childhood developed because of polio. So Alan Alder, the actor, he had polio at seven. His parents used hot blankets and, and massage to try and stretch his muscles and get him working again. Donald Sutherland, the actor, he had polio as a child and just red and red and red, I think, lying in bed because he could do nothing else. Yeah. Francis Ford Coppola... Um, and then the other one, which I didn't know about, was Johnny Weissmuller.
1: Oh. Johnny Weismuller, who, Tarzan. of course,
2: Tarzan. Yeah. Um, and previously to being Tarzan, he was an Olympic swimmer and won five golds. Apparently, he took up swimming to strengthen his body, having had polio.
1: Oh, and the Mexican artist Frida Kahlo, who painted all of those glorious and mystical self-portraits, she got it when she was six. And ah. she remembered that uh, it began with a horrible pain in my right leg, this is what she wrote about it, from the muscle downward. And then uh, the fact that she famously wore all of these traditional Mexican costumes, the long skirts, that was to disguise this withered leg. And she ended up trying to strengthen it through boxing and cycling. Really? Wow. Yeah. One thing that caught my eye uh, regarding vaccine hesitancy um, – is uh, in addition to the idea that incompetence or lab mishaps or uh, people just being a little nervous about getting a vaccine, there's another element to people not wanting to get it, and that's the fact that apparently in 2011, the CIA organized a fake vaccination, a fake polio vaccination program to help find Osama bin Laden. So that the word got out in Pakistan that uh, people were being fed this fake news idea in order to manipulate people's trust. So I think that's quite interesting that people are taking something that Well, the CIA were taking something that could ostensibly help people and use it against them for their own purposes.
3: Yes. um, That was, to put it mildly, silly. (laughs) One of the things that vaccination uh, programs rely upon is trust. It's all about trust. It's all about trust between you and the person giving you the injection or the drop of the polio vaccine on the sugar cube kind of approach. So it's, do you trust this specific nurse or doctor? Do you trust their profession? Do you trust the government that is mandating or providing the vaccine? Do you trust the pharmaceutical companies that have created it? Do you trust your fellow um, citizens to also get vaccinated so that the minimal risk of vaccination is shared properly across um, the population? And when the CIA does something like that which directly feeds exactly the reasons why polio is still prevalent. Uh, Well, prevalent is the wrong word. We are down to very, very few cases now, but certainly in the 2010s and 2000s, still prevalent in the mountainous areas of the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, Nigeria, exactly the kind of places where the Islamic militants that have quite a strong sway over the forms of government there, you're playing directly into their hands. (laughs) The the main issue with that, though, was that while most of the world agreed that getting rid of smallpox, probably on balance, a good idea, the methods that were used to do it were, again, ethically dubious in the 1970s and uh, and 1960s when the program was really at its height. So you, you have stories of forced vaccination of villages, of village elders who had flat out refused to have the vaccine, and yet troops come in in the dead of night and hold people down in their... Uh, homes and have them vaccinated. There's a, there's a, and he's got the best name in the world. There's a, a, a doctor who worked for the WHO called Larry Brilliant. So his name's Doctor Brilliant, <laughs> which I think is just, it's the perfect name. And if you if you Google him, he's done loads of videos and podcasts and interviews about this because he's a very reflective guy about his role in a lot of this kind of thing. But he was one of those WHO kind of workers in India that was part of using the military to help. Force vaccinate people. Um, And his position has always been that he's going to have to live with what he's done for the rest of his life. But that on balance, he thinks that eradicating smallpox has saved billions of lives and therefore was worth it. But he does understand as a sort of a spiritual guy that metaphorically speaking, when he gets up to St. Peter, he's going to have some explaining to do. So certainly in this case, the CIA, I don't see what the uh, trade-off is with what the CIA did of, uh, well, at least we got bin Laden. Just the damage that was done to the reputation of the program through doing that was not worth what happened there. So like I said, silly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Gareth, how would you sum up the impact of the polio vaccine on society?
3: I think there's some really positive parts of it and then there's some elements that we need to be wary of. The positive thing about it is that it properly cemented the idea that vaccination is safe, it's effective, it's meant that lots of research has gone into vaccines because it's been proved how much, even if you just want to think about it cynically, how much money a state can save by having less disability, less death, fewer hours having to be taken off by parents to look after sick children but it really cemented how important it can be. So in Britain over the next few years you get a measles vaccine, you then get um, even more effective um, vaccines against measles, mumps, rubella, uh, hepatitis, various forms of meningitis. On the other side, for quite a few years this success makes people think that magic bullets are the answer. So, so much money is thrown at trying to find THE cure for cancer not into cancer research and ways of providing better aftercare or thinking about specific forms of cancer and how they can be prevented or treated, but this idea that there will be a pill that's invented and it will be the cure for cancer. And this is the time where there is the pill to cure morning sickness. Again, you will get onto this during your series. I don't want to be flippant about it, but Children of Thalidomide, which is in the song, very much part of this story of... Oh well there'll be a pill for that this is perhaps the peak of medicine thinking that all the solutions to life's problems come through a magic bullet and as time goes on as it becomes much more clearer that social factors play such a major part in the way that people experience disease and the impacts of disease as we move away from infectious diseases like polio to having to deal with things like heart disease. Um, as we move towards having to deal with the problems of an aging population. It becomes clear that chronic disease is is, financially speaking, a much bigger issue, and that can't be cured by a single pill, no matter how much large pharmaceutical companies try to come up with these things. And then, of course, you get the emergence of new infectious diseases, things like Ebola, things like AIDS, things like coronaviruses, which are not dealt with by magic bullets. And as much as vaccination is going to help us so much, Uh, during this crisis as we speak in mid-2021, it's not the end of the problem. We're still going to need public health systems. We're still going to need an adequate welfare state to provide sick pay. And so the real win from this is it proves that when humanity is focused on a problem and it asks the right questions in the right way and it draws on everybody's expertise, it can find technological and social problems to life's issues and i i still kind of believe in that polio proves it can be done when there is a will
1: so many shadings to this story dr gareth millward thank you so much for helping us understand this terrible disease and also the the nuances and the problematic aspects of the cure
3: Having this conversation has made me realize how much more stuff could have gone into the book rather than the <laughs> one chapter that I ended up writing about <laughs> 1950s polio in Britain involving Charlton Athletics so I will uh, I'll have to go back to my notes and see what else I can uh, what else I can write up
1: Okay we'll get scribbling
3: Thank you Gary that was fantastic
1: That was so good you really know your onions <laughs>
2: So, Katie, that was polio, every bit as horrific, I think, as we expected. The idea of what it does to you, how it feels, the fear in communities.
1: I have to say I gleaned a little bit of hope from the good Dr. Millward because of the idea that we can be passively vaccinated through people's night soil. <laughs> um, you know, forget washing your hands anymore. Don't wash your hands. Don't wash your hands if you want to be protected from polio, for crying out loud. Just go and roll around in a cesspit.
2: Um, when we're done, Katie, I think also we should go and both get guitars and amps, turn up the gain, and we can record the debut single from Monkey Death Ship.
1: <laughs> Those poor monkeys. I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh. But I have to say, Billy, once again, we defer to the master because... If he had left polio out of his ranting and raving about what was happening in the late 20th century, we would have questioned his sensibilities.
2: Do you know what I was thinking, Katie? Because we know that these lyrics didn't take him forever. But the scope and the scale of his lyrics are fantastic, aren't they? We've criticized him gently for his obsession with baseball. And we know there's a lot of boxing in there. And
1: Studebaker. I have some (laughs) questions about Studebaker.
2: (laughs) But vaccine, I think, has to happen.
1: Has to happen, has to happen. Now, next week, he's, he's on to another un. The lyric is, England's got a new queen. Um, I wonder who that's going to be.
2: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Um, I haven't been watching The Crown at all, but there's, there's so much around that coronation. Uh, culturally. So many weird little quirky things that I think that will be a fantastic episode. And in the interim, Katie, if people would like another podcast to listen to, I want to tell you about something called The Last Archive. Now, this is from Harvard historian and New York writer Jill Lepore. And this season, Lepore is investigating purveyors of doubt. So hoaxers, fraudsters, pseudoscientists, and how the peddling of doubt evolved over the 20th century, leading all the way to the capital insurrection on the 6th of January 2021. Listen to The Last Archive wherever you get your podcasts.
1: That sounds really good. And you know what? He who sows doubt is in power. It's all about power, Tom.
2: And on that note, we'll see you next time. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.
0: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad,